Today's guest is Slavin Bilac from Agent IQ. Slavin is the co-founder and CEO of Agent IQ. Among many responsibilities, Slavin is leading the Agent IQ engineering team and is responsible for technology behind Agent IQ platform from early design to serving in production. Before Agent IQ, Slavin worked at Google for 12 years, initially focusing on improving Google search engine and acting as search lead in the Google Japan office. Later, he led the cloud machine intelligence group tasked with making Google internal ML technology available on GCP. Slavin, thank you for being on Anablock podcast. Slavin, what is Agent IQ and what do you guys do? Thanks for having me here and really appreciate the opportunity. And um, Agent IQ mission is really to make it easier for customers to engage with their financial institutions while enabling financial institutions to deepen relationships with their customers and get to know each and every one of their customers. I'm sure you've had experiences where you called your bank and you had to deal with the IVR system, you know, where you have to press a lot of buttons, input a lot of data. And at some point you're pressing zero and just saying like, operator, operator, let me talk to a human, right? And even when you start talking to human, then you have to answer repetitive question. What is my, you know, what's my name? What is my account number? What's my social security number? What is the name of my pet goldfish? Bunch of questions. And only after answering all those questions can you actually start asking your questions. And typically it's not the first person that resolves it. So you have to get transferred again. You have to answer similar questions. And God forbid that the call drops because you start from zero. All the context is lost and you have to start from the beginning. So this is clearly a frustrating experience that um, you know we, we, we are helping improve. And the core of what we are doing is really uh, allowing banks to establish a relationship where a customer gets, gets a primary point of contact, a concierge of sorts, and they can keep engaging with them using asynchronous, authenticated messaging. And the context is always preserved. There's no need to repeat yourself. And ultimately, as a customer, you know who's helping you. This is beneficial for financial institutions because they can differentiate themselves by providing high quality, high touch, high tech service to their customers, making it seamless, but also they get the ability to proactively reach out to customers. They don't have to passively wait for requests to come in, but they can uh, proactively follow up and really delight their customers. Um, So you have... uh joined you you were originally the co-founder of the company and then um you actually your your background is in engineering i I believe at maybe at one point you were the cto of the company too i'm not sure if that's true or not but you have worked with this technology um in the past basically i guess can you just tell us a little bit how did you start and you know basically at what point did you decide to, to co-found Agent IQ and why? Sure. So Agent IQ was initially started again with another person and I was the CTO originally. And I, I came on really to build out the technology 
uh, we initially started with the idea of having uh, AI boosted customer service platform. But as we, as we started engaging with potential cli uh, clients and scoping the market, we realized there's a bigger need in the market that, that is not being satisfied by any, any of the competitors, any of the solutions out there. And that is the need to have in digital space, in digital world, have the ability to develop and maintain relationships and, and to get uh, kind of the high touch, high tech type of service that, that customers appreciate, but you know, institutions even that they try to provide it don't have means to do it otherwise. And this was definitely not specific to financial institutions. And ultimately I believe we are developing a new category of service, personalized digital service that is gonna become you know, ubiquitous and available in lots of other verticals, but financial vertical was interesting because it is traditionally a relationship-based business and relationships are key in, in to setting up prosperity and, and, and uh, various other benefits. But the traditional model is to some extent uh, suffering because in-branch service, which was again the pillar of the of their traditional banking model, is is being displaced by digital service. Customers like digital service because it's more convenient. It's available on you know on their phones and their des desktop computers. Okay. And it's great for simple transactional type of stuff. But they they are losing by moving completely digital. They they lose losing the ability to really get. Uh, answers to open-ended question, advice, and support when it comes to bigger questions. <clears throat> For example, you know, you can imagine, you know, your, let's say your spouse lost uh, uh, um, lost work because of COVID, and you're struggling to make mortgage payments. Currently, there's really no channel, no no solution that allows you to ask those types of questions. But in 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 a world where there is an existing relationship, you have a primary point of contact at your financial institutions, that's a natural place to ask questions of that sort and ultimately get the advice. And, and we know that uh, you know, 60% or more of customers, consumers act on advice they, they receive from a trusted source like, like their financial institution. Okay, very interesting. And so based on your current offering or your, your product that's currently in the marketplace uh you're obviously you said your primary target market are the financial institutions um is it geared more towards the sort of the kind of larger institutions basically like kind of multinationals or do you have a specific market that you found is more i guess adaptable to your product versus others it's a great question. So we are primarily focusing on community uh, banks and credit unions, typically, uh, you know, institutions in size, half a billion, say 30 billion in size. And these are the institutions that have differentiated themselves, not necessarily by kind of low margin, high volume type, type of uh, transaction, transactional based business, but by providing that um, you know, homey community feel and touch 
and providing support for all of their customers in, in the community they live. And these are, these are the customers that uh, appreciate the ability to take the relationships they have developed in physical world and transfer them to digital world and also add new ones. Okay. And are you um, really, so you, you're basically found your company's uh, headquartered in, um, in San Francisco. Uh, have you, uh, as an organization, went in through any like seed or venture rounds? Um, have you onboarded any investors over the last few years since you started this? Uh, we certainly have. So we have uh, several, you know, prominent uh, VC companies and financial institutions as, as investors, and we have raised a significant uh, uh, amount of money. Uh, our lead investor is Sierra Ventures, uh, which is uh, a VC company that's been around for, uh, I would say, probably about 50 years or so, uh, especially uh, active in SaaS, kind of customer-centric types of solutions, and, and we are in smack, smack center of that. So. It was a very natural fit. Got it. And what's the, for all the listeners, all the uh, podcast members, if they want to reach out to you or your team, what would be the best way for them to inquire about your product? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, most comprehensive place probably our website, you know, okay. www.agentiq.com, uh, but also... Anybody out there, please uh, feel free to reach out to me via email at uh, slaven, S-L-A-V-N, at agentiq.com. We do have a you know, fairly active uh, LinkedIn channel as well as a Twitter channel where we try to post updates and, and you know, I'm willing to, happy to engage. But ultimately, probably the website is the, is the best starting point. Excellent. So to all the audience members, we will be posting this information on the uh, description of, of this website. I'm sorry, of this podcast. Uh, so you'll be able to find the website and all the other information that Slavin just mentioned. Uh, great. So maybe let's go back. So uh, Slavin, that's an unusual name. What's your background? Where do you come from? Thanks for asking. So, um, <laughs> I was born. I, I was born in uh, in Sarajevo, uh, back when it was part of part of Yugoslavia. Um, currently, in that's in Bosnia, but I consider myself uh, Croatian, and you know I've I've okay. uh, uh, been living abroad for I would say large majority of my life, probably more than what is it now, like 20, 25 years plus outside and, and about you know 16 or so plus in 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 my hometown in my home country so got it so i generally like uh, as as you probably know and the audience knows this podcast is really centered around technology startups business science so most of the guests are really either in technology in some shape or form or they're software engineers so your background is software engineering uh, so when did you start programming? Um, so I started programming, you know, when I was probably fifth or sixth grade. Uh, you know, we got uh, a Commodore 128, 128K oh, wow. of memory. 
Um, and I remember, you know, we got a few games also, but I also, I got a book uh, on basic programming. And, you know, I was trying to, to you know, retype and create some of the games uh, from that book. So that was like the first, first um, experience I had. You know, the games did not work most of the time, but it was definitely fascinating and, and good to try. After that, you know, when I moved to U.S., um, I, I get obviously more exposure, more access to computers and, and have done a lot more work in high school as, as I was um, um, taking, you know, some bunch of electives and whatnot, including programming. And then I went to University of Washington where I, where I did my computer science degree. So th that's interesting because uh, you uh, you beat me there because I started with Commodore sixty four. So you were uh, you were you were better off. What, 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 well, well, one 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 generation behind, I guess, because exactly, uh, yeah. Commodore sixty four <laughs> came out probably like two or three years before one twenty eight. You had a lot more so. processing power than I did. <laughs> uh. yeah. all, all that memory, huh? Just to think of yeah, exactly twenty eight k. Yep. Yep. We used to do all kinds of stuff. So how did you, did you, uh, I, I know there was obviously a, a war back in the nineties where you, did you have any experience, um, with the war itself as a, as a child or a teenager, uh, back in Bosnia in those days, or did you, were you able to avoid it? Sure. Uh, no, I, I definitely experienced it firsthand. Um, uh, I, you know, um, the fighting kind of in my hometown uh, started basically late March, and I spent the first four or five five months in 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 Sarajevo. Uh, we were, you know, surrounded by both sides uh, by all sides. It was very hard to leave the city. Uh, very limited supply of food. I remember, you know, eating basically same same dish for like you know one month straight or something uh, and it was definitely not not a lot of fun but at that time I was not I was not 18 yet so you know I was not obliged to join the military or anything like that so um, ultimately I you know decided to leave and and you know with some help from my parents and and their friends I was able to do so towards towards the end of uh, end of uh, July, and then I then I moved to Croatia and I lived officially as a refugee with my with my relatives for about a year or so before. And where was this in to, Croatia? Uh, this was in Labin in uh, Istria, Croatia, very close, okay. basically between Rijeka and Pula, so about about okay. halfway between Rijeka and Pula. So I lived there for about for about a year before before coming to US. So how did that trip or really transition happen uh, between moving to and you said you moved to Washington State yep. directly from Croatia? How, I guess how well, well, it's, why it's, Washington it's, State <laughs> or yeah? <laughs> it's a crazy story, but. Um, you know, I was I was a student back back in Croatia at that time, right? And I heard the radio commercial about a program for basically student exchange, but it was really 
a way to allow some students, you know, from Croatia to come to U.S. for a year or so to experience the life in U.S. And although it was termed as exchange, it really, I don't think anybody was coming to Croatia at that time because Croatia was also considered, uh, you know, very fragile and, and sensitive, you know, uh, uh, not necessarily war zone at the time, but, but very close to the conflict in Bosnia and ultimately uh, likely that tensions would flare at some point. So I, you know, I, 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 I heard it commercial or advertising on the radio. I could not get it on my head. So after like two weeks or so, I actually called the radio station to get all the details and whatnot. And, um, you know, found the contact and and the contest, you know, for recruiting, recruiting students was still running, luckily, and I applied. So, and from there, uh, you know, a lot of lot of uh, interesting circumstances had to happen, mm-hmm. but ultimately. So you end up in yeah. uh, in 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 high school, or was that in college when you? It came? was high school, so I, I was still high school. Uh, I guess I came to U.S. Uh, my junior year in high school. Okay, and then you uh, you finished high school in Washington <laughs> State, and you enrolled from there uh, to university. Uh, not quite that simple. So I, I, I did, uh, <laughs> I did finish, I did finish high school. Um, and at the time I was living with, uh, with a host family, great family, uh, Ron and Nancy Freeman, they have definitely been very important part of my life ever since. Uh, but you know, after finishing high school, I, I moved out, uh, started working and then started attending community college and I don't know if you know, but you know, community college typically a much much cheaper, much e- to attend, much easier to get into, and not, not necessarily a lot of exams and whatnot. Um, and I did two years of community college while okay. while working basically full time, and then I transferred to University of Washington, what would have been my my junior year. Okay. And did you study some, I'm guessing you were, you studied um, computer science or engineering at the University of Washington? Yes. So, so I actually, and, um, to, you know, um, again, another interesting story, but um, when I was at the community college, they required me to take a foreign language. And although I, I'm native speaker of, of a different language that was not sufficient. So in order to get my associate degree, I had to take a foreign language. And at the time they had uh, French, Spanish, and Japanese. And, and being okay. from Europe, I, 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 I thought like it would be most interesting, most exciting to start studying Japanese. And that's, wow. that's how I got into it. So I, I had taken, I think I had to take like a couple quarters or a couple semesters, whatever. So I started uh, studying Japanese language, got kind of interested in, in Japanese culture. So when I uh, transferred to University of Washington, I actually, you know, what was supposed to be a two to three year program ended up being a four year program for myself because I did one year exchange in Japan, okay. a student exchange in Japan. And then at the end of it, I, I ended up uh, triple majoring. So Bit, oh uh, wow! So um, what was the, what was bachelor the of science, 
Bachelor of Science in Computer Science, and then Bachelor of Arts in Linguistics, and Bachelor of Arts in Japanese. Oh, wow. So uh, just for, for some of us that do not know where it exactly is University of Washington. University of Washington is in Seattle. In Seattle, it's, okay. It's the it's it's biggest, probably best known, most recognized school in Washington, in Washington State, in, in Seattle. So, okay, so is there a Japanese community in, in Seattle? Or while we were studying, basically, did you have any exposure to Japanese culture in Seattle? Or was that your first experience when you uh, did your um, exchange program in Japan? Um, so actually, uh, while at the community college, you know, once I started studying Japanese, I actually found a, a Japanese roommate, and I, I was roommate with him for uh, almost two years, I would say. Okay. And, and a Japanese guy from just north north of Tokyo, um, and you know, we, we lived together. He was obviously a very fluent English speaker at the time, and you know, all, most of our interaction was in English but it definitely got more exposure to Japanese culture, including the foods and, you know, uh, kind of uh, people interactions and stuff. And I always find, find it very fascinating. And, and that was one of the reasons, you know, when I learned that the University of Washington has, has an exchange program, I, I applied for it and, uh, and uh, you know, moved on from there. Interesting. So you uh, you speak Croatian, Japanese, and English. And do you see or find any similarity uh, in the languages at all? I mean, obviously, they have different script, maybe different um, uh, so syntax the, I mean, overall, but... They are all, I mean, they're different language groups, right? So they're kind of as different uh, as they could be. While, okay. while still being spoken by, by a large number of humans. But uh, I always found Japanese not to be as difficult as you know, most American English speakers would, would think of it because they have a lot of uh, grammatical constructs, which are very similar to okay. Croatian, uh, namely uh, case markers and, and you know, ability to... Uh, basically flip flip uh, words in sense to some extent uh not not directly comparable to slavic languages like like croatian but definitely enough to you know for for us to to be able to pick up on the grammar and uh and you know use it effectively the the hardest part about japanese really is is the the writing system which is a little bit uh, fairly complex, should I say, with, with uh, mm -hmm. several different scripts used sometimes interchangeably, sometimes sometimes just in combination, kind of making it hard to get like a full command of the language. But like the speaking is fairly straightforward. The the syllable structure and and uh, grammar to some extent is fairly straightforward with a few exceptions. And then um, you know biggest problem for furnace is really use of uh, honorifics and polite polite language, which kind of makes it hard. But again, these are concepts that exist in Croatian, so not, not as, as strange as, you know, from, as for, say, an American speaker, American English speaker who's not used to them or has not, never seen them, experienced them before. 
So for, for some of us software engineers, I was always wondering, you know, how, so obviously like, for example, if you take something like JavaScript or Python, is it to a certain extent uh, customized or how do Japanese program? How do they write software? Uh, so programming, programming languages are the same, right? And, and you know, some, some of them like Ruby obviously uh, have a lot of roots and influence from, from you know, Japanese creators. But the, the part that is difficult and different is that the characters of the script are typically multi-byte characters. And traditionally they would be two byte characters, but with, uh, you know, uh, establishment and, and, and popularity of uh, Unicode and UTF-8 in particular, uh, most likely there are you know three two to three characters in uh, programming languages and all the you know file reading writing operations need to support operations on multibyte characters and this requires some some adjustment but you know ultimately there is there is fairly good support in libraries and tooling to support it now okay back in the day and you know, 20 years ago, when my when my first exchange program was happening, there was a lot of uh, confusion and issues with emails, sending emails, because the, the, that encoding had to be changed and UTFS was not prominent at that time. So, you know, Japanese people would be using, say, EUCJP to, to compose it, then we have to be uh, encoded some MIME encoding and then convert it into whatever character uh, the the reader can can uh, interpret. Some sometimes uh, it be ECJP or sometimes it be some something something different. So there was definitely uh, possibilities and room for characters garbling, and um, you know it, it, to the extent that UTFA has become prominent things have uh, become much more stable and simplified. And now it's, it's really not a problem. You can, you can read and write Japanese from any, any device, basically, from your Android phone, Mac OS, Windows, obviously. So it's, it's definitely come a long way. Very interesting. I was always curious about that. So let's go back to the university days. So you are uh, finishing or graduating from University of Washington. You have... Uh, three degrees, um, finished your, your schooling, and then um, where do you go from there? So while in my last year at university, um, I actually started doing various uh, part-time jobs and I started working for a company called GoToNet. Uh, there was a, there was a you know, Seattle-based.com company. They were responsible for Metacrawler I don't know if you remember those days, but that was the yeah. Was I one do of remember the... GoToNet too, actually, uh, vaguely, but I do remember that. That's a unique name. And and you know, um, they they did kind of the meta search engine, you know, before it was a thing, before Google has established itself as a leader. And I, after working for them part time for a couple quarters, I believe I. I started working full-time when I graduated. So it was a, it was a great, um, great, great environment. Uh, we had an office at uh, P2 
Pier Pier sixty one or something, basically on the on the water in in Seattle, okay. Puget Sound. Very nice, convenient, like uh, at the edge of downtown, and, and lots of lots of very smart smart people working there, um, making making um, making improvements on, on on search and various other other fields that uh, they were tackling, including I think they had like a, a web hosting, free web hosting framework that was also quite popular. And uh, yeah, it was it was a very cool job to get just out of uh, out of uni. What happened with them? Were they acquired? Uh, they were acquired by uh, Infosys or something. So I, I actually don't remember the details. I remember um, that in in spring of two thousand. So after you know after graduating. I really wanted to go back to Japan. I wanted to go back to the laboratory where I did my exchange program. Uh, and that's ultimately where I did my master's and PhD uh, with uh, okay. Professor Huzumi, Huzumi Tanaka, who he was one of the prominent uh, leaders in Japanese kind of uh, uh, computing, natural language processing uh, community. And um, yeah, and I, I really want to get back there. So I, while I was working, I, I applied and ultimately I got a, a Mombusho Japanese government uh, scholarship that, that basically paid for most of the expenses of my master's and, and PhD. So I, I quit, go to net, uh, basically just the same week that they in, announced that you know they were being acquired by Infosys. And what years was time, this? This was in two thousand. I think it was like uh, uh, September two thousand or something. And so it was just like at the kind of height. Just, just basically that's yep, where when the dot com bubble burst because it, yep. it burst in March. So, so it, 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 it burst. It burst like a few months after. I remember you know at the time mm. on paper it looked like I was leaving a lot of money behind. Because my yeah. options uh, have ballooned, you know, over just like you know a, a year or so, uh, to very significant amount. But nonetheless, I, I I really wanted to, you know, continue my education, go back to Japan. Uh, so I decided to forego that, and ultimately it turned out to be a wise decision because uh, go to net and emphasis stock uh, they. They tumbled, you know, when with the dot com crash, and and they never really recovered. So, so you, you did, did you study? Did you study at University of Washington um, NLP, or is that something that you found interesting while you're at GoToNet? So NLP, I, I got introduced with NLP during my exchange program in Japan. So. At at the University of Washington, I was studying uh, general computer science, so a lot, a lot of things that you would expect, you know, typical computer science course, algorithm, data yeah. structures, uh, various types of applications, system design, whatnot. What programming languages but, were prevalent back then, or at least at, on in the university setting? Um, so. 
well, one of the courses was was uh, programming languages. So uh, I've done like uh, Lisp and Prolog and uh, Java as well as ML. Um, and ML as, as a meta language, it's basically a functional language very similar to Lisp or kind of similar to Lisp, should I say. Um, okay. And, and that, that, that was the most, and then obviously C++, C++ was also big and, and in some courses C, but as I did some of the introductory courses at my community college, I actually did that, that in Pascal, which, oh, which wow. was already, already to some extent uh, phased out at University of Washington. When I went to Japan, I, I went to Tokyo Institute of Technology and again to lab of uh, uh, Hazumi Tanaka, Professor Hazumi Tanaka, and a lot of most of the work I did there was using Perl. Okay. And, and Perl was a language of choice for natural language processing at the time. Had the very nice libraries for ha handling handling multi multi character uh, languages, including uh, regular expressions, and that's really made it easier and uh, and. Uh, nicer for use with natural language processing. So that's, that's kind of how I got my first exposure to, to Perl. And then all the work I did from my master's and PhD was was combination of Perl and you know, some data stores like uh, MySQL and uh, Postgres sometimes. So did did you, I'm guessing, so NLP, sort of your interest in NLP happened afterwards, but uh... Sounds to me, at least, that your Bachelor of Arts in Linguistics was helpful in your further uh, education and PhD work. It is. It is. So, I, I mean, I was always interested in, in languages, you know, and I've started learning Japanese before. I've, I had my um, experiences also learning Italian when I was in Croatia. Um, German in high school in, in, in Seattle, and then Spanish and Portuguese after graduating. So I always had that desire to learn, you know, languages and talk to people in the language of choice, always like traveling. So that, that's always been uh, a hobby of mine, if, if not a uh, favorite pastime. And studying linguistics is really helpful because kind of helps you understand basic mechanics and, 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 you know, gives you idea of, you know, how things work. So you're not asking questions like, why do they say it like this? It's ultimately, you know, it's not, uh, it's not the best, best uh, question to ask when trying to learn a language and getting some kind of uh, understanding of grammar and, and syntax and morphology uh, really kind of helps to form generalizations and, and patterns in your head, which makes it easier to learn new languages. So it's true for programming languages also, but, but of, uh, much more so for human languages. And uh, you finished your PhD in, in, in Tokyo in Japan. Um, how long did it take you to get the PhD? Uh, so it took me four and a half years to get my master's. Uh, so two and a half years for PhD and two years for the master's. And, uh, you know, typically that, that takes about five years, but I, I, I was 
uh, you know, lucky enough or fortunate enough that I got my publications, which were kind of the basic requirements for getting PhD, getting publications at uh, renowned conferences and journals uh, in time. And I was able to graduate in four and a half years end to end. And so I'm assuming this was your master's and PhD were in Japanese, not in English, but really Japanese. Uh, actually, no. So the publications, I only have one publication written in Japanese. And, and I have to admit, my professor put a lot of effort in that to make it uh -huh. kind of uh, palatable and consumable to Japanese readers. Most other publications, all other publications I did were in English. And uh, it is now the norm that most international conferences are you know, fairly English-centric. And, um, and you know, that has helped me. I did, I did do a defense of my master's and my PhD in Japanese, but the slides were all in English. So kind of, you, I speak Japanese, but I, all the material is in English. So it was okay. uh, definitely interesting dynamic. And that's, that's how typical, typically people would, would do it in, in Japan. Some, some Japanese people would have the slides and everything in Japanese, but many of them would have it in English because all the publications that kind of counted toward the PhD would be in English. Got it. And uh, once you graduated, what was your career move? What happened next for you? Um, it's another kind of interesting, funny story, but um, just as I was as, as I was uh, completing my PhD, uh, Google was opening their office in, in, in Japan, in Tokyo. And I get an invite from, you know, from my professor. Uh, you know, they were recruiting and, and you know, they had an open office. And at that time, you know, I, obviously I knew what Google was and I knew what they were doing, but ultimately I perceived it as a little bit eccentric, you know, company, you know, California-based startup where people come to work in flip-flops and bring dogs to work, which was very different from the environment in Japan, especially in, in, in like prominent companies in Japan, like Sony and and entity and whatnot for a lot of interesting natural language processing, you know, machine translation research was happening. So I was, I was mostly curious at that time, but ultimately I did send my application in and I, I visited uh, that open office, open and, and that really is when I got really excited about Google and I was very excited there was uh, I'm not sure if you know who Rob Pike is, but I'm not uh, sure. he, he, he's, he's, he's one of the kind of famous uh, language authors. Uh, he's behind uh, Go language at, at Google. He's also oh, okay. was a, one of the chief contributors to Sozol, which is another kind of Google internal language. Before that, Awk. And, and you know, he was with Ken Thompson when UTF-8 was conceived. So he's, he's, he's a very prominent figure, I would say. And I remember him talking about how he got his, you know, scripts that were running for months at a time at on-prem computers, getting them running on Google Cloud on hundreds and thousands of machines and getting them down, down from like months to hours in runtime. 
And, wow. you know, during my PhD, I definitely had scripts that were running for days and weeks at a time. So I was like, yes, that's what I need. <laughs> I want to get my scripts to run in hours. That would be so great. And that was one of the best, uh, you know, experiences when I joined Google, when I wrote my first, first um, you know, scripts, I was able to run all of the web, the complete like web index, which was like, you know, maybe one, one, 1. 1.5 terabytes at a time, run it on like 10,000 machines and get my program to complete within an hour. It was like so exciting, so. So this was in, uh, you were interviewing for Google Japan or were you in Mountain View? Um, so I started my interview process in, in Japan and I did like several interviews in Japan. I interviewed with uh, the office directors at the time, and 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 one one kind of visitor from uh, from US, but then they flew me to Mountain View, so uh, I spent I spent uh, you know almost a week in Mountain View. I had two more days of full days of interviews, so I talked to like you know 10, 12 or so people. Wow. Uh, you know, interviews, very, very technical, all hands-on interviews, a lot of coding, problem solving. Um, so was it, so was it? Controlling to, controlling to like uh, popular myths, not, not so many riddles, but a lot of, lot of interesting technical questions and a lot of, a lot of time spent in interviews. And, and then I got an offer. Was the interview process for you um, in Japanese and English or? So uh, two of my, whatever, 12 interviews were in Japanese and those were two native Japanese speakers. Most other interviews, most interviews in US were, you know, English English speakers. Some of them were not native, but you know, all, all US based and they, they were all in English. But basically the first person I talked to, he was the, he was the only one that was really tasked with, with checking whether my Japanese was up to par and you know given that I have my proficiency level one uh, rating and you know that I have been speaking and, and working in Japanese for several years before that it was not it was not a big problem and so you you got an offer and which year or was this and when when did you start working for Google uh, so I got my offer I can't remember exactly the month, but it's probably January of 2005. So it was before I, I officially uh, graduated. I mean, at the time, my my defense was, was done. So it was you know clear that I would be graduating in March or so, end of the school year. Uh, but because I needed a work visa in Japan, I was not able to start right away. So I actually started up in, uh, towards the end of May. I believe 20, 20th of May in 2005. So it was, you know, six, seven months after Google went IPO. And okay. some said it was frust frustrating because I, I started like a couple months later because of the work visa that I need to, needed to um, get from, from Japanese government. And at that time, you know, Google, Google stock went up from, you know, 100 twenty dollars to hundred eighty five dollars or whatever right so uh, <laughs> it, it was like ah oh, just let me let me get in because all the as you know all the option prices and stuff they get locked in on the day you start working not 
does not depend on the offer or anything else. So, so then, yeah, uh, you started Google. I mean, you know, even though it, it went public back then, it was relatively speaking still a smaller company compared to what it is today. Um, you start working in Tokyo for Google Japan, right? Or, or did you start yep, yep. here? So I, I, I was basically, yeah, I, I was I was the number three engineer hired in Japan. And, um, and you know, office were very small at the time. It was so small that I only worked from Tokyo office for one day and, and then they flew me to US and I worked from US for next three months. And all the kind of training and, assimilation happened in the US. And after after that period completed, I went back to Japan and, and started working from, from Japan office. Although I was always employee of, of you know Google Japan. So you know I was getting paid in, in yen, not not dollars. But I spent okay. uh, probably throughout my life at Google, I, I spent probably a good one fourth of my time in US, although although I was based uh, in Japan. Did you, uh, through your early experience at Google, did you meet or did you see or run into Larry Page and Sergey Brin? Did you have any exposure? Uh, yes. I mean, I've, I've had, uh, you know, many or multiple meetings with, with uh, both of them. Um, you know, with Sergey more so early days when he was still involved in search discussions. And, you know, I definitely remember meetings where we were talking about how to tokenize queries and, uh, and similar thing for Google search. Uh, Larry, I've met him uh, at the later point, you know, when, when he became CEO the second time around, I believe it was like 2011. At that time, I was the search lead in Tokyo office. So I, I was a manager of a large team, 50 plus people. And, uh, you know, whenever he would visit Japan, we would have meetings and, and, and discussions and whatnot. So they were very hands-on. Uh, I also had experiences with uh, uh, Eric, Eric Schmidt, while well, he was, he was uh, CEO, as well as you know, various uh, engine leadership guys, Alan Eustace and, and others that were prominent leaders inside the Google organization. It was definitely uh, very accessible and easy. And as you probably know, uh, at that time, Google still had uh, TGIF every Friday and, and later moved to Thursday, would have uh, company-wide meetings that would be hosted by Larry and Sergey. So, so definitely, uh, significant exposure to, to the leadership. Very cool. And so you spent, um, once you joined Google, you spent about 12 years working directly for Google? Yes. So I spent eight years in Japan and then four years in US. So, so after, what, after are, yeah. what are some of the, I guess, some, some of the, you mentioned some of the stuff that you were the lead for Google search in Japan, but what are some of the, I guess, more interesting stuff that you worked on that you, you know, you, you can share with us? What, um, what are your, some of your favorites, I should say? Well, so one of my favorites is, I'm probably one of the very few people who can say that they have implemented their PhD 
in, in, in Google search algorithm. And that's definitely one of my, my proud you know, moments when I was able to do that. Uh, but basically when I did my PhD, um, I, had, I had developed an algorithm to extract translations of, um, of people names and, and you know, terms that you, are not in dictionaries from, from Corpora. And I did an implementation which allowed uh, you know, Google to do that from, from anchors, basically web links and uh, launched it, launched it uh, with very good positive results. And you know, that, that was ultimately what led to one of my uh, earlier promotions. So that, that was very, very cool. But I, was, I worked on uh, Google Spelling and you know, uh, primarily on, on spelling correction for non-English, non uh, non, non-alphabet script languages. But I also did spelling for Serbia and Croatian and, uh, and Bosnian, I believe, uh, Macedonian, a couple other languages we launched uh, back day where, I, where I, was, I was doing that as a 20% project, whereas the you know, uh, Japanese spell correction was like my full-time project. So those, those were some of the cool ones. I also worked um, in ads for several years and there I was, um, implementing a new advertising product based on feeds for knowledge base and, and entities like movies and uh, event tickets and stuff that, that uh, grew fairly quickly to about half, of, half, of, uh, half a billion in, in revenue. Uh, it was definitely interesting. And then in my last uh, couple of years, I was leading a cloud machine intelligence group, which was tasked with taking a Google internal algorithms know-how and turning them into Google Cloud product. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, AutoML line of products that Google offers, but AutoML yep, Vision, the first one, uh, you know, that was started by me and, and, and launched, uh, beta launched, uh, you know, while I was still at Google. And then, you know, from there, uh, obviously I left Google and other people carried on. Um, Hey, Google was was a great company to work work for. Lots of smart people, a lot of resources. You know, compute was never a problem. Uh, data, to a large extent, was never a problem, and uh, uh, it was definitely definitely a good experience. And you know, I wouldn't be where I am now if I if I did not did not learn a lot of uh, a lot of things. That's great. There. So you uh, at one point made a decision, you know, you had enough uh, at Google or maybe you want to have some kind of a change. And then how did you decide to co-found Agent IQ? Was that something maybe that was born through your uh, research in the past, your PhD work, or is this something that you sort of stumbled upon through different ventures? Um, That's a great question. So, I mean, at some point, you know, Google grew to be a very big company and, and became more bureaucratic. And, you know, to some extent, uh, there was a lot of change in structure, always trying, you know, to 
uh, optimize things at, at a high level, uh, which was causing some frustration for me. I, I like doing new things, pushing new products. And these are typically products that would get affected by reorgs. So, you know, my, my VP would change fairly often, more often than I would like. And then that was kind of one of the uh, reasons why I was getting increasingly frustrated at Google. So uh, I wanted to go to a place where I would be more in control of, you know, the success of the product, not necessarily uh, whether, you know, certain, certain, certain people or organizations liked it, but whether the market liked it. And, and what better place to do that than uh, in, in a startup that is dependent on paying customer base and, uh, you know, competing in a, in a, in a very aggressive and non-forgiving environment with, with other similar startups and incumbent companies. But it was definitely exciting. Uh, my co-founder I met through, you know, some mutual acquaintances and stuff and, and ultimately uh, we agreed on the vision of, of um, helping the end customers, making more seamless for them, using AI to remove friction and, and making you know, customer service more accessible. And you know, from there, one, one thing led to another. Got it. Uh, did you uh, go through an incubator uh, initially, or were you able to, you know, get some angel money in place to start uh, the whole operation? I guess what did the beginning of Agent IQ look like? Yeah, so so you know, my co-founder uh, really he, he's a serial entrepreneur, so he had, he had some connections, and you know, he was instrumental in uh, getting things off the ground. I came in again as a technical a CTO, as a technical lead, and was responsible for building the product out. Where he he was, he's the one who had uh, spent most of the time thinking about funding and go to market. Um, in in early 2018, you know, he uh, uh, left the company, and I I I stepped up. And at that time is when we went from kind of vertical agnostic uh, approach to a very financial, financial institution centric approach. And because I really felt that we needed, needed to focus on a specific market and show that we can operate within a specific segment of a specific market before trying to be everything for everybody. And, you know, ultimately that, that has helped us because uh, it is very hard to compete when, when uh, you're not focused and you're, you know, getting distracted and, and uh, trying to chase very different use cases and, and applications to support different verticals. So focusing and to some extent reducing our market size has really helped us because through that we were able to get some clarity and, and get appropriate you know, partnership and appropriate people to kind of join the company. Um, and one instrumental hire was uh, you know, Soren Bested, who's our CRO right now, who had an excellent uh, background working with the financial institutions and helping them innovate 
you know, mobile payment solutions and who has spent you know, a couple of years before joining Agent IQ uh, developing a prototype solution uh, in collaboration with Umqua Bank, one of the uh, influencer banks in, in, a, in a small, mid-size uh, community regional bank segment of financial institutions. So, you know, we joined forces in 2018 and, and from there uh, to re resolve and, and, and focus, uh, we were able to, you know, make those initial sales and, and grow our market to where we are now. So to all the co-founders or founders of different companies and startups um, that are kind of maybe at the early stage, like what would be your uh, word of advice? Um, Based on your experience. So I think the most important thing is, you know, things never go the way you expect them to go either for good or for bad. It's never as good as you, as you hope it will be. It's never as bad as you fear it will be. And most important characteristic in my mind is really uh, grit or perseverance, basically not giving up in, 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 in face of ever-changing situation, highs and lows, and you know, unpredictability. And uh, you know, that, that is the most important aspect that helps uh, convince the VCs. It also helps uh, you know, motivate the employees and ultimately you know, potential customers, clients and customers, and really is imperative in, in, in building, building a business because you know, nothing is really as, as it was kind of designed as, as we thought it would be, but with true perseverance and, and grit, we, we were able to push the company forward and, and uh, you know, we still have a long way to go, but I'm hopeful that we will become on top and really build out a new category of uh, service, a personalized digital service, what uh, is going to have impact way beyond, you know, what I, I expected what Agent IQ was kind of uh, started to do. So it is, it is important to just keep, keep going. So talk about grit and perseverance. One of the trademarks of some of the more successful uh, police technology startups is to know and execute a pivot. Uh, did you guys at any point since you started Agent IQ have to pivot in any sense of it? Yes, very much so. As I mentioned, uh, initially we started as a AI boosted customer service platform. So it was vertical agnostic. Uh, and, and you know, the value add was to some extent uh, something that there's a bunch of other startups trying to trying to execute. Again, through pragmatic use of AI and, and you know system design. That I've learned at Google and you know several other people that you know were working with me to build the framework in. You know we had some advantages, but uh, it was a very competitive market. But what we what I realized talking to prospects and clients is there was a, you know bigger missing missing piece out there, and that is the ability to have 
establish and maintain relationships between customers and their institutions, financial institutions in, in, in our case. But basically a lot of frustration that you know, uh, people experience when dealing with, with Comcasts and you know, telcos and, and you know, financial institutions is really about losing context, having to start over, having to repeat yourself, having to deal with that friction. That's, that's a loss of time, both for the customer, but also for the institution. And, you know, through introspection and through various interviews and discussions we had our clients and prospects, we realized this is the value add. And, and, and you know, we modified our product, we pivoted to reduce our scope from, you know, various verticals to financial institutions, specifically basically we became a FinTech and we added all the elements of uh, building and maintaining a relationship into our platform. And this really, uh, you know, formed the, the, the basis of what our product is now and, and you know, what ultimately uh, I talk about when I say about developing a new, new category, the personalized digital service. So uh, one kind of question in closing is, to all the young engineers, um, entrepreneurs, you obviously have a very rich experience and a rich career. Uh, what will be your word of advice to maybe some of the either college students or high school students that are getting into programming, maybe have ideas to start or have an idea that they want to build a product around? Or uh, would your advice be to, be to get into the entrepreneurial waters right away or is it maybe better to get some experience like you did with some well-established you know uh progressive company like google what would be your word of advice um it's a great question and i think you know i i would i would recommend people to get some real work experience before uh before really indulging in, in the entrepreneurial um, path, uh, that can be beneficial, you know, financially. You know, it's definitely easier for me to to be an entrepreneur now because I, I know, uh, you know, ultimately my my wife and kids will not go hungry even even if something bad happens to the company, right? Even if we are run out of money at some point, we still have a you know somewhat of a cushion in place that really makes it easier. To, to push forward, even when there are more interesting and financially attractive options out there. You know, the reality is, you know, I'd be making much more money if I was still at Google, or, you know, if I moved on to Facebook or Apple or, or, or um, you know, whatever other companies is coming to be an IPO uh, this year. But I do think it the most important aspect is really to not be afraid to try like uh, a lot of lot of things a lot of turning points i did things that not a lot of people would have done you know coming back to my story about you know calling a radio station to get information about an ad that i heard you know a week ago that's not that's not uh, you know very common but i just didn't want to give up and i i, I wanted to to try to see what the outcome would be. 
and it turned out to be probably the biggest turning point in my life. You know, when I uh, came to US, uh, you know, I got exposed to Seattle computer computer center of the world at that time because of Microsoft, and you know, it has really had a, a profound impact on my career. Similar thing, you know, going to Japan. Uh, there's definitely points where um, it didn't seem plausible that I would get a scholarship you know, or get, get, get like some funding to do my master's and PhD. But ultimately I just tried, I, I, I did it, I applied, I went to the process and I applied for more than one you know, scholarship and, and, and ultimately I got, I got one that turned out to be very good for me. So I do think it, it, that is the important mindset to have, not necessarily to worry about mitigating risk and, and not, not experiencing, you know, loss or, or, or the tours in life, so to say, but to try, try new things and, and push, push new envelopes and really uh, embark on, on things that majority of people would not, would not do. And that's, that's ultimately what might yield the biggest, biggest, uh, impact and, and might might be biggest turning points in your life but unless you try unless you give it give it uh, some effort you you will never know and and uh, that is the worst uh, outcome if you're if you just give up before even trying so I guess that would be my well, advice. thank you I, I think that's a great advice thank you for uh, being the guest on app on a block podcast uh, you have a absolutely amazing background amazing uh professional experience and career and i definitely wish you all the best with agent iq and uh with everything else thanks again for being the guest thank you thank, thanks for having me and definitely enjoyed the conversation thank you, thank you.